I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. Today, we're going to be discussing yet another pandemic, but one that hasn't gotten quite as much press, avian influenza. The 2022 outbreak of AI affected many countries, including the United States, where over 13,000 birds were affected in Iowa alone. Chicken and eggs are obviously important grocery products, and AI can affect both farmers and consumers, especially considering the ongoing effects of general inflation. However, here at Charles River, chickens are also used to produce specific pathogen-free eggs, or SPF eggs, to grow viruses for use in vaccines. Therefore, bird flu also threatens the continued supply of vaccines, including COVID and flu vaccines. To discuss this issue, I have a flock of experts, Wayne Collins and Nastasha Ortega from Charles Rivers Avian Services, and David Swain, lab director for the USDA, specializing in exotic and emerging avian viral diseases research. Welcome, everyone. And uh, David, a special thank you to you for having a very complicated name. Um, it always is nice to have someone with a tongue twister title <laughs> come on the show. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be with you today. <laughs> All right. Can we start off with a bit of background on the 2022 spread of bird flu? David, can you walk us through how it emerged and migrated to the U.S.? Yeah, glad to. Well, um, when we start talking about outbreaks, we really describe those outbreaks based upon the virus lineage and the virus lineage that we're concerned about today uh, is the Eurasian H5N1, which has circulated in Asia since 1996 with five transcontinental spreads. Mm. In uh, recent history, uh, we have to talk more about uh, you know a, a genetic uh, subset of this this virus lineage, the 2344B clade, and it began causing major outbreaks in Europe, Asia, and Africa in the fall of 2020 and then on through uh, 2021 and into 2022. So with this going on between those uh, three continents and also including the, the, the jump over region, the Middle East, uh, the virus then appeared in uh, Newfoundland, Canada uh, on the Avalon Peninsula in uh, November 2021, first uh, causing uh, mortality and black back goals. And then in December of 2021, it was identified in a hobby uh, exhibition farm in St. John, also on the Avalon Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, then from there, it moved by migratory aquatic birds uh, down the eastern coast of the United States with the first positive detection based on samples collected in a hunter check station in Collett County, South Carolina. These initial ducks were American widgeons. Then from there, it began to be detected in other uh, wild birds throughout uh, January. 2022 uh, in other southern states uh, all the way down to a very southern part of Florida and then the first poultry cases uh, began in February uh, 2022 backyard flock in Virginia and a turkey flock in uh, Indiana and then from there uh, it kind of spread kind of westward and then back northward uh, through the summer with a low level number of cases and now we have a return of the virus as uh, migratory waterfowl move back south. Oh, that's that's why I was wondering about that because you know, peek behind the curtain for listeners. Um, this podcast was originally going to be uh, recorded earlier, but due to scheduling conflicts, we had to push it back. And unfortunately, it is now emerging in the news again. And 
becoming becoming a news topic again. So it's because of the migratory patterns of the birds. Yeah, and that's uh-huh. that's really kind of what's what's been seen in the European Union and Asia and Africa that that virus moves back and forth following the the aquatic birds as they go between their summer breeding grounds in the northern part of the northern hemisphere and then mm-hmm. it heads back uh, you know kind of southward for the winter and more towards the equator in those areas. Well, that explains my next question perfectly. I was going to ask about what is the benefit of understanding and tracing the virus's specific route, like what birds it's coming from and and where it's going. Well, I guess that explains it. You know when it's going to be coming back if you know which birds are spreading it. Yeah, you know, that's really helpful for the farmers and and the hobby flocks uh, that they can then hear uh, a warning being spread to them Mm -hmm. uh, through uh, their their special media that they use. It's very targeted toward their uh, production group. And then as they heed these warnings, they can hear that, well, we got these migratory birds coming back in and they're, you know, at a certain location. So once they get close enough uh, to be a risk to their poultry flocks, uh, that they would then start to re-examining their biosecurity and try to enhance that by putting in extra features or at least reassess it to make sure they're following their protocols properly. Because that biosecurity is the first line of defense in preventing the introduction of that virus from those migratory birds into their their poultry and that could be included you know bringing birds in if they're outside reared birds which mm-hmm. most hobbyists have outside reared birds but it could be organic birds in production too yeah no that makes sense it also makes sense why they have uh, canceled having chickens at our local county fair who are probably not the only ones so anyway uh nastasha and wayne can you tell us about how charles river uses spf eggs to for vaccine development well, we uh, sell our SPF eggs to vaccine manufacturers. Um, and so what they do is they inoculate these eggs with the virus um, and they produce basically collecting the allantoid fluid for that, for example, in the case of influenza, and then develop a vaccine from that. The biosecurity is very, very important. So we have to maintain that, that level of um, security for our birds to make sure they're free of a long list of pathogens. So we have to follow the USDA memorandum as mm-hmm. well as the European pharmacopoeia. So there's there's two standards that we follow. And um, if anything were to happen with our eggs in terms of avian influenza, if we don't have that strict biosecurity, then there's going to have an impact in the industry. So I assume that when you say we have to follow US and EU regulations, there's no point of conflict between them. It's just adding on both. So even more secure than maybe is happening in either US or just EU. Correct. Yes, our yeah. eggs uh, comply with both. Wayne, anything to add to that? Well, um, you know, the main main difference in these these eggs and and the commercial eggs um, is that these are fertile eggs. I think it's important to point out mm. that uh, that in order for vaccines to be developed, the eggs are uh, are fertile. So compared to the commercial egg that you buy in the grocery store, it's a little bit different from that respect. The SPF egg has a higher standard than the fertile egg that's used for the antigen manufacturer. So the seed virus or the starting virus is normally uh, raised in the SPF egg, and then the uh, the virus is produced in a, a egg that has a lower standard um, for the actual antigen production for the vaccine production when you're talking about, for example, the flu shot that's given to people. So David, can you take me through the USDA's biosecurity protocol for poultry farmers? Uh, how are they advised to monitor their flocks? 
Yeah, this is a pretty broad uh, category that is, is beyond just what USDA might recommend. It's really mm -hmm. companies have uh, recommendations or requirements for their growers, and and of course, you know, people who have backyard flocks, um, I think, are also concerned about the health of them and what should they do. And mm -hmm. the health of the flock really tells the farmer uh, so much about what is happening, and. So there's certain things they want to be looking for. So you want to be, you know, monitoring uh, the birds for their feed and water consumption. Uh, and if there are declines in either, uh, if it's a commercial company, you want to contact uh, the veterinary staff of the company and they will uh, conduct an investigation or sample collections. Um, also, there may be specific clinical signs to look for, respiratory signs or looking at the, the bodies of the birds. You can look uh, at the combs or wattles and look for hemorrhages or or areas where the tissue is dead that's uh, termed necrosis. Or you may actually just find sudden death um, mm -hmm. in, in the flock and mortality. So with, with those, you would contact the veterinary staff and then they would uh, do an assessment of, you know, what's the, what, what's the chances of it being avian influenza or some other disease. Mm -hmm. And the, the protocol will be to collect uh, swabs taken from the, the mouth, the oral swab, or from the back end of the bird, the cloacal swab, best to take those from uh, dead birds or from ill birds, and then those mm -hmm. would be sent to a veterinary diagnostic lab as part of the National Animal Laboratory Network for molecular testing for influenza virus. And so, you know, right now, you know, the risk for an introduction of, of high path AI through the migratory waterfowl is, is pretty high as these birds migrate from their summer breeding grounds in the fall to their uh, wintering grounds in the south. Uh, so it, it's really a great time to reassess that biosecurity to uh, decrease the chances of the virus uh, getting into the house, uh, you know, maintaining that line of separation, reassessing all the biosecurity protocols. And then if you have something abnormal happens in that flock to have uh, samples taken and assessed, or could it be high path AI or could it be something else that needs also the attention? Yeah. Wayne, can you tell me the difference between a regular commercial flock and Charles Rivers flocks? I understand. Yeah, we, we've yeah. covered this a little bit, but the, the main thing is we, we test our white leghorn chickens for over 30 specific pathogens. The regulations are described in the Code of Federal Regulations. And there is a, a movement to, to differentiate the SPF eggs to allow for movement um, of the eggs in these type of situations where poultry movement is being restricted because of avian influenza. Yeah, and if, if I can add to that, please, uh, Mary. Um, so we follow the National Poultry Improvement Plan for our eggs. With that, we are being compartmentalized with commercial industry, like commercial mm -hmm. layers, for example. And as Wayne was saying, we're different in that, you know, if there was, for example, a positive case of AI near our flocks. Mm -hmm. We would be in the quarantine zone. And unfortunately, our eggs are used for vaccines. So we mm -hmm. can't just stop, you know, shipping out eggs because it impacts the, the industry, of course. So we are set apart. We are different uh, in terms of commercial um, layers. Again, that, that comes down to the biosecurity. We test our birds on a weekly basis, as Wayne was saying, for including avian influenza. We have a criteria that we have to meet in terms of the sensitivity of our assay for AI. Mm -hmm. So we are different in that sense, and we should be um, categorized differently as a result. Now, we are working with NPIP um, to be able to not impact those commercial layers uh, industry either. 
uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, if we are going to separate ourselves, you know, how would it impact the, the commercial layers globally, internationally as, as they try to um, ship? So it, we're working with them. It's a work in progress, but it is progress. <laughs> we we run over 36 tests on every flock every week. So it's yeah. a lot different than what's happening in the commercial business. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does it does seem like they should be separate categories, you know, right. the 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 regular farm versus <laughs> versus our chickens are basically kept in a vault away from everything else. So, yeah, that makes sense. So, David, can you tell us about avian influenza vaccines? Like I know they exist and they're used in other countries, but not in the US. So, what's the history behind that? Yeah, so the US has a a long history of dealing with high path avian influenza outbreaks and that program historically has been uh, usage of diagnosis, uh, diagnosing the disease, quarantining the farm, uh, depopulation of that farm, and then virus elimination. And that has been successful based on history of eradicating high path AI outbreaks in the past. Uh, Currently, vaccination is not approved uh, for use in the field, but it is uh, under study by USDA as a possible future tool Mm -hmm. for use in high path AI prevention and control. And there are uh, many issues because it's never been used before for high path AI in the U.S. There's many issues that have to be resolved before it can be implemented. For example, there are uh, trade issues with trading partners. Uh, There's the availability of the the vaccines right now. Since there's no demand in the U.S., there's none of the vaccines available for use. Then there's issues about surveillance programs. We'd have to develop and define surveillance programs looking for virus within vaccinated flocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the logistics of application of how would you do that and what types of poultry would you vaccinate? And then the, the other final thing is probably monitoring for that vaccination to say, well, how good is the protection? You know, how good are the titers and how often do you need to check the titers? And so those are all questions that have to really be worked out uh, now before we can actually implement any kind of vaccination program. Mm-hmm. And Wayne and Nastasha, is there any discussion at Charles River of vaccinating or would that interfere with the SPF eggs? Yeah, we're, we're not allowed to vaccinate our birds for anything. So. Yeah, I figured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it would mask an infection. So it's it's not for ours. But I mean, uh, if if there was a requirement for AI vaccines, um, then certainly it would use our SPF eggs for that, which is Again, why we have the strict biosecurity to make sure that we'll be ready to supply when needed. Right. That makes sense. So for all of you, uh, can we get into the difference between AI testing in the U.S. and the EU? I understand the EU tests are more sensitive and maybe our tests have trouble telling the difference between a vaccinated bird and an infected bird. I think I think what you're what you're referring to there is a, a strategy that's been used in Italy. David could tell you a lot about it. It's called the DIVA strategy, where you, your vaccine strain is a slightly different uh, strain that gives a different antibody response for the normally the, uh, the neuraminidase of, of the um, strain. So they norm, normally has the same hemagglutin side of it, but um, it, it's so that you could test a bird and you would be able to tell whether it was a vaccine or, or, the, or the wild strain that's in the field. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how successful that has been. David would probably give you a, a lot of insight on that. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of there's lots of questions um, about how to how do you do surveillance in a vaccinated flock, and 
yeah, you're, you're right, Wayne, mentioning that in Italy, this was back in the early 2000s, they developed a process where they looked for differences in production of antibodies, whether it was a vaccine strain based on a neuraminidase or a field virus, which had a different neuraminidase. And that takes a lot of preparation ahead of time to have an inactivated avian influenza vaccine that you could differentiate uh, field infection from antibody response from the vaccine. But then there's a lot of different kinds of vaccines uh, for avian influenza. For example, recombinant HVT vaccine with a, a hemoglobin gene insert. In that case, there is no neuraminidase. So our standard uh, test that would, we would use for serology, ELISA test looking for NP or matrix antibodies are negative in the vaccinated flock. So they already have a kind of a built-in uh, neuraminidase uh, serological test. Hmm. Um, you know, on the other side, if you look at, uh, you know, looking for the virus, in that case, we're looking uh, for detection of the genome of the virus and we use a real-time PCR test. Uh, the, the one uh, history point I'll make is that the, we here at Southeast Poultry developed the first real-time PCR test, and they were implemented in the early 2000s as part of the U.S. surveillance program in the live bird markets of the Northeast. And that was quickly adopted within the U.S. as the official test, replacing uh, tissue culture uh, as the, the, the means of diagnosing low-path or high-path avian influenza. And that test, once it was developed, was spread around the globe and adopted by um, other countries. Uh, the, the first test, which is a matrix test looking for any type of avian influenza, and then the more specific H5 and H7 test. Mm -hmm. And uh, over time, of course, um, influenza viruses are known for change. They like to change <laughs> genetically and they drift, uh, mutate at the hemagglutinin gene. So over time, you have to modify those real-time PCR tests by updating the primers and probes so you can still detect in the field uh, viruses that emerge. You know, slightly different H5s or slightly different H7 viruses. Mm -hmm. Are the European tests more sensitive than the U.S. tests? I would say they're the same as far as their sensitivity. The Europeans also do the same thing. They analyze their tests on, on at least an annual basis. We analyze ours at least on an annual basis, and we update them to keep them sensitive. And to kind of, you know, sort of give you a, a feel for that, so we here uh, at Southeast Poultry and then our national lab, the National Vet Services Lab, we participate in uh, international uh, proficiency tests with other countries, including European countries. And so basically we're given unknown samples to diagnose based upon our own country's real-time PCR test. And every year uh, we participate and we always score extremely high in accuracy on our test. So I don't think there's a really a difference in the real-time PCR tests that are used in Europe or in the U.S. to diagnose high path avian influenza where i think we're probably equivalent in that area okay and again this is for all of you i assume one of the t deciding factors for vaccination is cost not just of the vaccines but of the tests but can you see a future where the cost effect is reversed and it becomes more effective to vaccinate well in the poultry industry cost is, is everything um mm -hmm. you know we're talking about companies that are producing millions and millions of birds and they're fighting for hundreds of a penny to uh to uh to be profitable so the cost is always an issue but when you're when you're forced to uh depopulate and destroy mm -hmm. um entire flocks the, the cost of vaccination seems quite affordable so yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Would you agree, David? Yeah, I mean, those, these are 
these are really complex issues and mm -hmm. um, you know logistics and the availability of vaccines and their cost do figure in the decision of whether you vaccinate but also in doing a surveillance program and and I think maybe I'll just use a definition of, of two different terms one is that um, a serological test which Wayne was the first to mention about that which can tell you a window of, of time you know was this flock uh, infected by a high path AI virus that it was vaccinated or not and the other and the other type of testing would be you know virological testing and that is a real-time PCR test which tells us if the virus is present is it active mm -hmm. being produced and shed and replicating uh, and that's the same test uh, as far as the virological test the real-time PCR is the same test for a vaccinated or non-vaccinated flock so you know as far as the cost um, you know the real-time PCR tests cost will be the same and I think maybe what Wayne was referring to earlier is with the serological um, DIVA test, you know, that cost is going to be dependent upon how many tests are run and, and mm -hmm. what it takes to develop that, that test. You know, and some of our vaccines are already compatible with the serological DIVA by the tests that we already use in the U.S., the ELISA and the auger gel mm -hmm. test, uh, which are our workhorses for serological diagnosis. Yeah, there's constant testing for influenza throughout the U.S. and the world, uh, just as David says, surveillance, the, the U.S. government provides an agar gel precipitant test to uh, accredited labs around the country, and there's constant surveillance for, yeah. for influenza under the National Poultry Improvement Plan. Getting a little speculative, and so no points if, if you get this wrong in future predictions, but I'm assuming that because of global warming, the threat of avian influenza is going to expand before it you know, goes back to any kind of normal level. So I think, would that affect the decision to start vaccinating? That's a David question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, yeah, you know, it's, uh, we, we don't have a crystal ball to look into and predict the future. That's, that's dangerous to think you can predict the future. But we do, you know, I think use in the U.S. Um, for poultry production, as well as USDA, we do use the best available science mm -hmm. in making those decisions. And right now, you know, we're thinking about, you know, would vaccination be a additional tool, a toolbox to help us in the future uh, in reducing the number of high path AI outbreaks, uh, the spread of high path AI or the prevention of high path AI. And those are really complex. And, and I've already kind of discussed the different points, you know, trade being one, but there are others that we have to, you know, work through to make those happen. I think, you know, we have to realize that the uh, current outbreak that we're having, this 2344B clade virus, is really, really a unique virus. Just to give you a little bit of, of history, so maybe the reviewers, the, the people who are listening today can really understand, uh, you know, what has been going on. But I'll tell you that when we look back historically, we'll see there have been 44 distinct highly pathogenic avian influenza viruses that have caused epizootics around the world since mm -hmm. 1959. And historically, we kind of break these down into um, two types of viruses that are high path, the H5s and the H7s. And these start off as a low path virus, and then they mutate and become a highly pathogenic virus. And when this mutation occurs uh, in our system in the U.S. and in the European Union, is that when it's identified in that flock, it's very quickly going to be identified and the flock's quarantined and they're depopulated. And that sort of ends that high path AI virus. It doesn't have a chance to go into wild birds and, and migrate and move. And we'd call those emergent 
high path AI virus. That means they're identified very quickly because of our modern diagnostics and they're put under quarantine and eliminated. But what we're facing today in the U.S. and in Europe and Asia is a virus that's been around since 1996, mm-hmm. um, this Eurasian lineage virus. And the uniqueness about this virus is that it has been moving between our domestic poultry, that's the chickens, turkeys, quail, and domestic waterfowl, and migratory aquatic birds since at least 2002. And so it moves back and forth, and the migratory fowl uh, are also affected by that, where there's been mortality and die-offs, for example, in the U.S. of uh, turkey vultures, but also in uh, other countries, there have been gannets and mm-hmm. pelicans, et cetera, large colonies have died because of this virus. So with this particular virus lineage, that's the one we're most concerned about. Not all high-path AIs are the same. This virus has been around a long time. It can move between migratory waterfowl and domestic poultry, and it has uh, affected more poultry and wild birds than the other 43 high-path AI outbreaks combined. So it's it's sort of different than other high-path AI viruses. Yeah, I actually just read a headline um, today that said that they were detecting it in penguins in Cape Town, which is which is sad. But. All right. From each of your perspectives, what do you want the general public to understand about bird flu and how it's evolving? Um, Nastasha, you want to go first? Well, um, I would say to understand it's not going to go away. It's going to be a constant issue that, as David was saying, we'd have to continue with surveillance to make sure we have it under control. How about you, David? Yeah, I kind of sort of gave a sort of semi-summary just a, a couple minutes ago, but to reemphasize, I mean, it's really this particular virus uh, lineage is very, very unique. Uh, and this wild bird, domestic poultry movement back and forth and migrations have, have made it become a global crisis. Uh, it has impacted many lives uh, from those who have uh, backyard flocks in the U.S. to you know, village poultry produced in very poor countries where it has impacted the food security of poor families and the livelihood of these poor families. But at the same time, in, in the U.S., in companies that have had uh, commercial poultry flocks become affected, uh, it has, you know, impacted their lives, you know, not only financially but mentally because it's their livelihood and, you know, it's, you know, they take a lot of pride and mm-hmm. care of their birds and to see them affected buy this and have to be put down is very devastating. So I, I would say we, um, it, it is, it is across, you know, all spectrums of society are affected by this and hopefully we will, uh, in the long run, uh, be successful in eliminating this virus from mm-hmm. our poultry flocks. We'll implement the correct kind of biosecurity that will keep it out and it will hopefully over time become less and less of an issue, but we do have to be realistic in that right now, it is uh, returning for the second year. It's returning for the third year in, in the European Union. So it does look like we may have it uh, established uh, at some level for a fairly long time. All right. Wayne, you want the last word? <laughs> it's kind of hard to follow that. But, uh, yeah. but um, you know, one thing when you're talking about influenza, whether it's uh, for poultry or for pigs or even for people, is it? It's the it's a constantly moving target, and it it's a very difficult virus to uh, to deal with. I I attend the World Vaccine Congress, and you know they've been talking about a universal flu vaccine for a long time, but nobody's been able to figure out to to put the puzzle together 
to yeah. figure out how to get there. So it's uh, it's just a, a very, very, uh, as, I guess, as in your question, it's evolving and it's it's constantly changing. And I think the, the poultry industry has as good a grip as they possibly could on the situation with their surveillance. And we are prepared for just about anything that comes our way, but it it, it it's something that needs constant scrutiny to uh, to make sure that we're not going to let it get better part of us. So. Yeah, constant vigilance. That makes perfect sense. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for sharing your expertise on this issue. And um, I, I feel better about it now that I know so many good scientists are working on it. No problem. All thank right. you for having us. Thank you. Thank you.